You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht, Benjamin Pieske, and Sam Gardner, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today, I'm talking again with Irene about what we can learn from journalism. So stay tuned and know some music. Today we are talking again about visualization and there's lots of content on the homepage for visualization. So check out the homepage under theeffectivestatistician.com and find many more helpful resources in terms of improving your data visualization skills. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the ever-growing video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. Head over to psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode. Today we are talking with Irene de la Torre Arenas about data visualization again, uh, but more in a specific context. And um, as she has worked for the BBC, for uh, some time uh, and has actually a background in journalism. It's great to talk from, uh, from that perspective and what we can learn about it. So um, if you don't know Irena, then scroll back a couple of episodes. Uh, we already discussed a couple of different topics and had lots of interesting insights on data visualization. So welcome again. Hello, thank you so much for inviting me again. <laughs> well, great guests are always great to have a couple of times. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> okay, so what's the number one learning that we should take from journalism? I think really think about your audience because that touches different points. The first one is... Is what you're doing accessible, readable, understandable? Sometimes when we do data visualization, and this happens to me a lot, you understand everything, right? Because you've done it. Yes. <laughs> and, then, and then you show it to people, you show it to colleagues, and even though they probably know what you've been doing, they don't understand much of what is happening there. So it's important to think about your audience, the person who is going to be on the other side, is it is she or he going to understand the information? Um, is what you want to say coming across in the correct way? Um, because sometimes actually that doesn't really happen. I would say that's really the most important thing. Coming a second point, is it accessible? So if it's a, an static graph, is it readable? If uh, if we are using specific colors, is it uh, readable and for people with colorblind, which is something that is very important in journalism. I, I was aware of it already because there are more colorblind people than we think. And I've had yeah. a couple of bosses uh, who were colorblind. And then at the BBC, being a, a public company, it was requested. It was, everything had to be accessible. So I learned that it's really, really important. It's basic that absolutely everyone can 
can read it. And this is just like if you're walking in the street and you have a, you're you're using a, a wheelchair that you're still able to to walk around it. Just yep. basic, yep. right? So check that our colors are understandable that people can differentiate them because that will make the chart much better for absolutely everyone, not only for for people who, who are colorblind. In terms of that, I think the first is, of course, in these cases, you need to choose your color uh, yourself. So what's what's a tool that you uh, recommend for people to use to choose colors or color choose scheme? Colors. Yeah. Um, I use a couple of tools. I start with Adobe Color Wheel just to check and see. Yep. Um, they it, it, it already has included an accessibility option where you can check how it works and if it's um, if it's accessible. Yeah. And from there, I, I start using other tools. One is uh, I think it's Beast Palette created by Susie and Alaya makes a mix. They they did it for for Netflix. They worked for the visualization team at Netflix. And basically what you do is you copy your colors and then you can see how they work in in the in the shapes because sometimes even even when we see all the colors, right? Let's let's think about for example blue and gray or or blue and purple when mm -hmm. they are displayed in very small shapes or lines, they actually look the same. So it, uh, yeah, yeah. If you have so, very thin lines, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so what this, this tool allows you is to, to see how these colors look in shape, if they have enough contrast, and then you can see it in the different um, colorblind so basically what you do, you start with, with your palette in, uh, for example, Adobe Color Wheel, and then you, you strengthen it with a different website. What I really enjoyed using is Adobe Capture. It's an app you can install on your phone. And with that, you can kind of point to different backgrounds, let's say in your garden, and then it will pick up uh, a color scheme from your garden. So, you know, the, the greens and, you know, maybe if you have red flowers, we'll, we'll take up the red and, and create a color palette from there. Or if you point it, let's say, to a more industrial area, yeah, it will have more the blue and gray and dark colors. Mm -hmm. Or if you point it, let's say, to your kid's uh, room, it will take up, you know, all these different colors, you know, depending whether you have boys or girls, yeah, <laughs> some different color palettes will come up. But um, that's really fun to play with. Mm -hmm. And so you can capture different kind of moods, so to say, yeah, depending on uh, where you go. Um, yeah, that, that tool is, is included in the, the Adobe Color Wheel, the website. Um, so you can upload it and then you can say, uh, I want a lot of contrast. So it picks the, the strongest colors or yep. uh, muted or... Um, if you want more or less the same shades, etc., it's very interesting when you use um, images from movies because there the color is used to create a specific feeling. So you yep. you start seeing the blues and the oranges working together, or um, blues and, and purples. Um, it's it, it's really fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. 
Uh, so you can say also upload kind of uh, pictures and then you can create kind of more like maybe a, a 20s style kind of uh, color or maybe an 80s color scheme or something like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. What's the next next point that um, you think is really important to learn from journalism? Um, well, there are two. Th there are several things, but um, the the one that comes to mind is kind of create a story, which is picking is is related to what we were saying before of what is the message that you want to come across, right? Um, of course. This really depends on the context where you're um, displaying your visualization. It's not the same if it's, a, let's say, a poster in a conference, uh, if it's a, a graph in just a, a scientific journal, or if it's an add-on in the scientific journal where it's like a video or a, or a visualization, that interactive visualization that is supporting that paper right um but really think about what is the message structure everything around it and create a story also in it and also think about again is it understandable is it are you making it as easy to understand as possible in in journalism there's this thing of thinking of of the audience as people who don't have time um so the message has to come across really quickly and you need to have labels, your title needs to be very descriptive, uh, then you repeat the information in the subtitle, and you have a legend, but you also have a notation so that, that everything is repeated and the information is, is, is just really clear. In terms of descriptive title or telling title, um, there is a, there's often this pushback. Well, doesn't the data need to speak for itself? What do you think about this pushback? I understand the point, um, but sometimes comparison between drag X and Y is not telling me what it, the graph is showing. Comparison of exactly what? Is it yeah. performance? Is it the speed? Is it um, an effect in a specific indicator in the patient? Um, that is what I mean by descriptive. It's not enough to say, comparison of x and y that is not really telling me anything yeah okay so but if i say um let's say response rates in questionnaire xyz of drug a versus drug b is that descriptive is that sufficient i had i had this same conversation last week i guess it really depends on the context again um i coming from from journalism again, it was really strange to me, uh, or it's, it was something that I learned that you cannot say the performance of drag A is X percent better than drag B, right? Um, which is something that you do in, in, in media. That's because yeah. that is being impartial. You're not doing anything. It's just a number. And it is, it is what the data is showing, right? Um, but in this context, uh, I learned that you cannot do that. And it was kind of striking to me. Um, that's why I say if it really depends on the context. If you, if you cannot do that, because that's not expected, then try to really be as descriptive as possible. 
And yeah. I like in these contexts to ask a specific question. So that the, the visualization gives you then a specific answer. Yeah. So if you say, um, how much better is truck A versus B in terms of response rates? Then I think the, uh, and then you can show a bar chart and, you know, you can see, okay, there's a difference is, let's say, 10%. Yeah. And then you can also have your inferential statistics around it, confidence interval or whatsoever. Yeah. Then I think um, it also tells a nice story because first ask a question, creates tension, and then the visualization basically uh, closes the loop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so, a good strategy. <laughs> yeah. I think that, that is really kind of nobody, you know, not even a compliance organization can, you know, say something against that. So uh, if you ask a question in a, in a, in a title, and mm -hmm. that is exactly kind of the question that the visualization is supposed to, to answer. Yeah. So um, I think that's, that's completely fair. Yeah. It's also, I, when I was preparing a workshop, I was, uh, I went back to a research from a former professor uh, of mine, uh, Michelle Borkin, and she, she studies how people read charts, how they remember them, what makes charts um, memorable. And in the first, in the first uh, research uh, that she did, they basically showed charts for like 10 seconds to, to, to people. And then they asked them what they remembered. And of course they remember infographics, anything that had icons, photographs, etc. for um, very traditional charts. They were not me very memorable. I think it because they, they just look very similar. So they don't remember the topic. Mm -hmm. And then for the next, the following one, they, they showed the, the charts for, I think, 30 seconds or one second or, or one minute. And what it showed is if you include labels, if you include annotations, if you include a really good title and subtitles, then those charts that were not very memorable before become very efficient and people remember what they are about and people remember what is the message. So, I think titles are more important in any context than what we think of, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And if you, uh, you even a bar chart, you can create or make also more accessible and more uh, understandable. If you kind of, for for example, for every, you know, instead of having a bar, yeah, you put let's say uh, icons of people on top of each other or next to each other. Yeah. So you can directly see, let's say each person stands for 10%. Yeah. And you have five persons for drug X and six persons for drug Y. You have, you directly see, oh, that's 50 versus 60 co uh, comparison. Yeah. So yeah. it's something that is, you know, much more easy than to remember than, you know, five centimeters for the six centimeters. Yeah, I also I also like using a slope charts to to highlight increase or decrease between two mm. two variables. Um, I think 
because you sh you basically connect to to lollipops <laughs> with yeah. a line and then you, you see if the line is going up or down so it's also highlighting that message of of, of difference um so that's that's something that uh, i really like and i haven't seen many slope charts in in pharma <laughs> yet yes yeah yeah the slope charts is so basically that is if you have you know basically two time points yeah start and end uh, before and after, and you have two groups or three groups or four groups. Yeah. Then mm. so you just, you know, uh, yeah, have on the horizontal axis the time and um, on the vertical axis uh, response rate or the mean score or whatsoever. Yeah. I, I think that's really nice. And you can also have then uh, the confidence bands next to each other, or maybe you just show the difference to placebo, yeah? Um, if you have multiple groups or multiple treatments, uh, that way it it's becomes really, really nice and accessible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, next point on the list that we discussed before was curating information. I think this is a really, really, really good point. Um, what does it mean for you? For me, creating information is really thinking again about the message and including only the, those things that are relevant for the message and the information and not because sometimes we want to, to add so much yes. in, in a graph. And, and I understand we want to, to kind of highlight many things at the same time, but there's a limit of, to what you can do. And sometimes if you include too much, um, then you don't understand a lot from it, at least for, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's good, it gets very easily cluttered, yeah? Yeah. And if you go back to the audience that you talked earlier about, if you think of an audience that has little time, too much information is, is distraction. And then your main point doesn't come across. Yeah. Again, this this really depends on the on the context. I think if if you need to 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 show a, a specific result really quickly, then be careful with how much information you're including. Right? Then if it's if it's something that is you should read with more time that is more carefully done uh etc then you can still show uh everything but slowly like create create a story around it and build everything around it slowly and, and step by step so that is understandable yeah and actually data visualization already gives you the opportunity to show much more data in smaller time frame compared to a table, yeah? So you can show the, the richness of the data in terms of, you know, uh, let's say, if you think about a scatter plot or something like this, yeah? You show already lots of lots of data points, but very, very fast. Or if you show um, lines over many visits, yeah? Um, you should actually show lots of data points, yeah? But in a, you, you get the main point in a glance and yeah. that makes it so, so fast. 
I think creation is also a service to the to the audience in terms of that you make sure that they get the main thing in the minimum of time and you you basically serve the audience. Of course, there's the on the other side, there's a pushback that you become maybe selective or let's say biased in terms of uh, what you present. Yeah, and that, that happens a lot with uh, time series data, right? Like where you cut, where do you cut, etc. Um, I think that, for example, some sometimes this might this might happen when there's this discussion around should you show overall results or aggregated results or patient level data, right? If you if you have a clinical trial with hundreds of people, for example, and you want to use a, a heat map, depending on the size of the graph, it might not be very understandable, but you're still seeing all the information at, at the same time. And maybe you're even displaying three different, three different variables and attributes at the same time. But is it is it easy to 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 understand? Is it uh, fast at telling you what is going on? Um, whereas an aggregated graph, it might be showing less information, but a specific is much efficient at telling you a specific thing. Yeah, yeah, and I think that is. Um, I think it's it's different layers. Yeah, like you all also have in journalism. Yeah, you have the title, which is the most condensed part. Yeah, then you have maybe, you know, a short, very short paragraph, just three sentences below it, which is maybe your executive summary. And then it becomes, you know, more and more broader. And I think that kind of layering and filtering uh, the the uh, information that way also is uh, something that you can very easily do with with data visualization in terms of that you have maybe the most important results directly available and then you can filter down and click down in an interactive graph and then show the subgroups and maybe you know the patients and additional sensitivity analysis and all kind of other things but at least you get the main point across very very fast yeah there are different uh theories around this. Uh, I think one of the most important ones, I don't remember his name, I think it's Ben Snyderman, but um, I will I will check it out <laughs> later. Yeah. Um, he says that usually visualizations, you either start from a very general view of the data and then you slowly go into the individuality of, of it. So you, you zoom in or you do the opposite. So you start, you start from the individual and then you go to the general aspect. Um, and I think this, this usually touches also with the structure of, of journalism. How do you start a story? Um, do you start by the by using a, a person as an example? And then you, you kind of um, go and speak about uh, what is happening to a more general group. But then mm -hmm. you have emphasized, you, you have kind of connected to, to the person, to the protagonist. Mm -hmm. um, and then you also have the other, the other side of stories that start with the general impact that is, ha is having in a population. And then you find people who are examples of 
of this situation, right? In database is exactly the same. Either you start with a general view and then you zoom in, or you do the opposite and you start with the particular and then you zoom out. But it needs to have, it cannot be you go from an individual then to general, then to an individual, then to general, because it becomes a little bit confusing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is basically deductive versus inductive in terms of how, how you approach things. And I think generally in clinical research, we have this uh, inductive approach. Yeah, this is kind of bottom-up approach. And so I think it's great to, from time to time, use the other one around and start with the answer and then show how you got to it rather than, you know, start with, here's the baseline characteristics, here's the patient disposition and so on. And by the time you actually get to the results, nobody is listening anymore. <laughs> um, Yep. Um, another point that we had talked about in the uh, prep is results versus process. Well, this also touches in that that point that we were saying before of from bottom up, right? It's it's just similar way, I think. And if, if from a journalism point of view, sometimes you also want to speak about the process of how you came to those results, uh, just so that you strengthen that your conclusion is not biased, that it, it's coming from a specific workflow, a process of thinking, etc. cetera. Um, I also like in here, for example, I, when I think about process, I'm, I'm thinking probably of all the, those patients participating in clinical trials who might want to know what is the process of launching a, a drug? What is the process of how how the industry is taking decisions or how, how governments are taking decisions. That is basically transparency. And that is, that's what it means to me at least. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can, we can do more transparency in the pharmaceutical industry as well. There is, and here also data visualization plays another big role because if we, there we can show much more kind of individual patient levels, which you can really only difficult, yeah, cannot really show in tables, yeah? So if you, for example, think about clinicaltrials.gov, it's all tables, one table after the other. It's all aggregated data, yeah? I think it would be much more accessible, much more transparent if we would have more data visualizations based on that, yeah? And if there would be more kind of interactive data visualization, if there would be data that, you know, shows the individual patient's levels. Now, of course, there's some kind of restrictions in terms of uh, privacy, especially when it comes to more rare diseases and things like that. Um, but for lots of the studies, we could be much more transparent there. And I think that would help also with building trust, because I think that is one of the great things we can also learn from journalism. Yeah. If you're building trust, if you're building kind of, if you're showing, you know, a good story, if you're kind of knowledgeable about it, if you have done your homework right, 
then you can build a lot of trust and that helps you to get your message across. And if you don't do that and you lose the trust, <laughs> it takes quite a long time to get it back. And I think for newspapers or for any kind of media company, it's, it's nearly fatal to, to lose this trust. Yeah. yeah, it all depends. Journalism is credibility. Yeah. People go to you because they trust that what you're saying it's right and it's done and it has a specific quality and it's very obvious in in media but i think it happens to absolutely every company um, where we buy where we buy because we trust that the company is following a specific quality control processes and where Of course, in, in industries related to our health, that is even more important, right? We, we want that the drugs happen in a specific process, that is, uh, they are checked, that there's a control, etc. So having that transparency out there of how that uh, medication came to be and how it happened or how it was put in the market, I think it's, it's extremely relevant, both for, for the company showing that You know, I appreci they appreciate that the patients want to know more about it. And also for the patients who are, and for the doctors who are taking those decisions. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Last bullet point that we had on the list, and that is something that we can actually learn quite a lot from, from journalism, is about engaging uh, data visualization. Can you give me an example of, what that, how an engaging data visualization, for example, looks like? Mm -hmm. I think it looks in different ways. It, it looks like in different shapes, depending on, again, context I keep repeating. <laughs> you can have a very static graph and it's still very, very engaging because it arises question. It, it makes you wonder what this is about. It makes you want to know more. I mm -hmm. would say That is very engaging and that is a very effective graph because it's making you do more actions, request mm. more information, etc. And then you have more uh, interactive visualizations that uh, basically what they do is that they are so interesting and they look so amazing that they make you stay with them for a yeah. really long time. And That is what an engaging visualization really wants. It, it wants you to stay with it, playing around and getting the information for a long time. Yeah, yeah. So it first kind of you need to grab the attention and then you can need to keep the attention. I think there's also this concept of scrolly telling that I really, really love. It's, it's uh, becoming more and more popular, especially on mobile devices where you kind of scroll down and then the graph is changing and the, you know, the small blurb is coming up that tells you what's happening. And then kind of you want to further scroll and scroll and see how the story continues. Mm -hmm. um, I absolutely love these kind of things. And it would be great to have, have these kind of things much more. Yeah, I think scrolly telling uh, happened because before, I think early in at the beginning of, of this decade, well, <laughs> 10 years ago, basically, we had many interactive in news where users were asked to click, interact with things, and then you were expecting them to get the information by themselves. Mm 
what happened is that suddenly, they, especially with, with phones, they realized that the people were not clicking. It's just too much. Um, so scrolly telling what it allows you is to have that interactivity, that feeling that you're editing the story by yourself as a user. But that's actually it's a false impression because it's already curated, it's already a structure. It's, the journalist and the team has already created the story for you and it's slowly, it's like an onion. So you scroll and there are different layers of information and but you only need to scroll, you don't need to click. It's already created there for you. So it's, it's a great mix between interactivity, but it's still a very rigid and fixed story so that you don't lose the interest. <laughs> Yeah, I think it, that's really interesting. I never thought that it was coming from because people weren't clicking. Yeah, I can see that. You know, the scroll is kind of what you do anyway if you scroll down a page. And so it's, it doesn't require you to do something different to change. Yeah. And it speaks to these very, very little hurdles that you need to kind of think about. Uh, to make it very easy for your for your audience to interact with the data, I'm I'm just thinking as an as an, another example. I was looking at one of the very early um, versions of the John Hopkins uh, dashboard, and I couldn't see that I could click on the individual countries to show me the by-country data. Mm -hmm. Because the, um, these countries didn't have some kind of, you know, this little tap around it or this kind of button-like view uh, that suggests that you can actually interact with it. And only by chance, I, you know, clicked on one of these and saw, oh, actually, there's, there's an interaction here. Yeah. And so... Um, Really thinking about these small hurdles uh, can make a big difference in how you uh, yeah. how you engage with your audience. Well, that's that's UX design. That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> if if you if you speak about that with a user experience designer, that person will tell you, well, that's really bad design. <laughs> <laughs> Because if something is clickable, it should look like clickable. This, this is also something um, I forgot to mention when we were speaking about accessibility, right? If you're doing a visualization everything, and you're including interaction, it should look like there's interaction in it. Yeah. So buttons should look like buttons, sliders should look like sliders, um, and uh, there should be like UX design, which sounds really flashy in, uh, depending on where you are it's really important because it's what makes a visualization usable. Yeah. Yeah. So. And yeah, it also goes back to a point that you mentioned at, actually at the beginning of, of our discussion, readability. Yeah. It's kind of these very basic things. I, I remember I was once sitting in an audience and the, the footnotes that was telling me uh, what exactly the analysis was. So, um, whether, and it was a kind of a three-year study or something, 
likes whether the dropouts were included in the analysis as non-responders or whether they were excluded from the analysis and only those patients still being on treatment were analyzed. That was so small at the bottom of the screen that you can hardly see it, yeah? Uh, especially in an auditorium where you look over lots of different um, Hats and then you know you very often can't see the lower part of the screen, yeah. So uh, that's also really bad in terms of user experience, and it can you know even yeah bias what, what you're showing. Yeah. So um, that's that's really important point. Yeah, I usually distrust websites that have text that is very small for me to read. That means that they don't want me to read something. <laughs> <laughs> it's just when you buy some like food and suddenly you, you check the ingredients and they are very, very small, right? <laughs> it's, it's very similar. Um, I, this is something that I, I learned at BBC that is tech sizes is also accessibility. Like there's some yeah. people who, and you should always give the power to the user to increase the font sizes or, or diminish them and make them smaller. Um, and uh, I, I was aware of it in a in a more kind of intuitive way, <laughs> yeah. but then there there are rules, right? So you couldn't go beyond uh, twelve points uh, in in an interactivity in an interactive, or the graphics had to have a specific font sizes so that they were readable in mobile, etc. So it's it's more, it's just the tiny details that make things. <laughs> that make a huge change yeah thanks so much Irena that was an awesome discussion we talked about accessibility creating a story creating the information uh, we talked about you know great titles and telling titles uh, questions as titles and about different approaches how we can structure our data visualization kind of inductive or deductive um, we talked about how we can make graphics more engaging so that it's it's rememberable and it is also something that people want to play with, want to learn more about it. Is there any one point that you would say is a, is the most important thing that you learned from your time in journalism? I think that for me, the key point there was think about your audience. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that's that's really because it touches everything else yeah. yeah at the end of the day and there's there's a, another point that i forgot to mention which is reusability and speed <laughs> which is extremely important there yeah. think about ways of making charts um reusable modules reusable having templates and 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 make charts fast so that you can then you can spend more time with the fancy and yeah. and interesting things too. Yeah, and I was really amazed about the presentation from the Financial Times data visualization people at the PSI conference in 2021. Um, the keynotes uh, where one designer said, did he kind of had only seven minutes or something like this to produce the graph for the uh, front page, for the cover page. 
And it's kind of it blew my mind. Oh my God, then you need to have really, really good systems so that you can produce a high quality data visualization at that time. But, you know, generally they wouldn't spend, you know, more than a day for it. Uh, so, yeah, no. <laughs> well, of course not, because then the news is already no news anymore. Um, so, I, yeah, I think that yeah, yeah. Is, yeah. And, and we, you know, in pharma, we spend, you know, weeks and months on it. So I think there's, there's a whole lot room for improvement in terms of speed. Um, the data journalism team at BBC News um, created their, their ggplot theme just so that they could. So usually the ONS, which is a statistical office in the UK, they publish data. I don't know, 8 a.m., for example. And there's a huge competition. And it, the BBC, of course, has this pressure of being the first publishing the results, etc. So they created the scripts, um, prepared them before. And then the day the data came, they already had the scripts in R with the ggplot theme, etc. so that in less than 10 minutes, they could publish the article. So yeah, that I don't think that happens in pharma. <laughs> Well, but of course, in pharma, it's something similar. If you have, for example, your your database log, yeah, you know that your big readout is, let's say, on the 20th of June next year. Yeah, you know that. Well, maybe it shifts a little bit forward or backwards, uh, but you know already what data to expect. So you can prepare for lots of these things in advance. So you just kind of plug them in at the time. Of course, then you always need to, let's say, fine-tune a little bit. Yeah, because I think that is another yeah. point. You always need to fine-tune data visualizations. You never can kind of completely have them um, uh, pre-programmed. There's always these small things that you need to change or there's kind of, oh, you didn't think that's it difference is so big or so small so you need to adjust something or some labels don't fit or whatsoever something is always happening uh, but if it's already let's say 90 percent there then you have the time and the processes to actually get to the end yeah okay. in time yeah <laughs> thanks so much Irena. thanks for a very very great uh, discussion again and um yeah there's surely much more coming in terms of data visualization. Um, there's also the uh, special interest group on data visualization that we are both working on. And um, yeah, just check out the PSI homepage uh, to find that there's much more content related to data visualizations there. And there is uh, surely more things coming at the next conferences as well. I think data visualization was a huge topic in the 2021 uh, PSI conference. And there's a growing number of uh, content also on the video on demand content library from PSI. So check that out and you can learn much more and apply what we just talked about. 
This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain, who helps with the show in the background, and thank you for listening. Head over to theeffectivestatistician.com to find more resources about data visualization and much, much more to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. Reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.